I hope you enjoyed that ridiculous series that we put together for this Christmas season. Um, I want to thank our videographer, Zach Neely, for the awesome work that he did in, in making that come to life. Um, this whole idea of this video series was uh, born out of this ridiculous little quiz that I put together and uh, have used at youth group Christmas parties for many years now. And uh, thanks to someone's reaction to it, uh, I won't name any names, uh, we started calling it the James Ruins Christmas Quiz because I was informed in no uncertain terms that I had ruined Christmas for this individual. So uh, we started talking about that in one of our staff meetings, and then there you go, uh, that, that idea was born and, and came to life. So. You know, the quiz that I put together, it asks a couple of simple questions under the premise of the Bible clearly says that blank. You know, it doesn't, uh, when, when we look at this story, for example, the first video, uh, we talked about the idea of donkey. We get this picture in our head that Mary rode a donkey into Bethlehem, right? Uh, and so one of the questions in the quiz is, well, clearly the Bible says that Mary rode a donkey, right? Well, there's actually not a donkey mentioned in the story. Now, does that mean there wasn't one? It doesn't mean that necessarily. We have to be very, very careful about arguing for or against things in the Bible based on just out of silence, arguing out of silence that it doesn't say. But it is humbling to think that Mary could have walked the entire 90-mile trip from Nazareth all the way down to Bethlehem. Or maybe they were part of a caravan and someone saw her stumbling and struggling and said, you know what, you shouldn't have to do that. Here, borrow my donkey for the trip. Maybe. We don't know. We just don't know. It's kind of filling in the blank and reading between the lines a little bit there. Now, the point of the videos and, and of the quiz that I put together in the first place uh, isn't just to ruin your traditional perceptions of the Christmas story, although I, I'd have to admit it is kind of fun to do that. Uh, some people get really uptight about that, and, and it is fun. Uh, but the ultimate goal is to point us back to the Bible, is to point us back to Scripture, is we become familiar with, with famous stories of the Bible, David and Goliath, the Christmas story, those kinds of things, we sometimes forget to go back to the source material. We forget to go back to Scripture itself. You know, take, for example, our, our video today on the wise men that we watched. When was the last time that, that you went back and, and actually read through Matthew chapter 2 and looked at the story of the wise men in detail? There's a lot we think we know about the wise men, but a lot of the things we think we know about them are, are actually pretty dubious. So Matthew, we talk about magi. Matthew doesn't tell us how many magi there were. Most assume three because there's three gifts. But there are some traditions that say they're up to 12, maybe even more magi. So the three magi eventually through history kind of become kings. So now we have three kings, right? We three kings of Orient are they eventually earn names. I don't know if you realize this, but all three of these wise men supposedly have names that, that have come out of history. Uh, the most common ones that you may have heard are Balthazar, allegedly from Arabia or possibly even Ethiopia, Caspar or Gaspar, allegedly from India, and Melchior, allegedly from Persia. But wait, there's more! In some cultures, gift-giving at Christmas time doesn't actually happen on Christmas Eve or Christmas Day. In honor of the Magi giving gifts to Jesus, the gifts are actually given and received on Three Kings Day in early January. So instead of meeting Santa at the mall, you would actually go and sit on one of the, you could pick whichever one you want, you go to one of the three wise men, sit on their lap, tell them what you want for Christmas, and then the three wise men will actually bring the gifts. There's a whole host of legend and stories, and all of those will change based on which part of the world you happen to be in. 
And on top of all this, we have the modern Christmas pageant, right? At the end of the show, we see the culmination of the story is the wise men show up off of their journey at the manger scene, maybe on some camels or something, and they come and they bring their gifts. And, uh, you know, I think most of us realize that the timeline isn't the same as what Matthew presents, but, you know, it's nice not to have to do a scene change right at the end of the show or to find a toddler actor for baby Jesus, right? So theatrical convenience, we end up with the traditional kind of Christmas pageant that we have. Mary, Joseph, newborn baby Jesus, all at the same time with the wise men. So it's not hard to see how the story gets kind of mixed up over time. With all the addition and baggage that's added to the story of the Magi, it's no wonder people begin to start to question the the accuracy and authenticity of the story. And when they go to do that, then the question becomes, well, if I can't rely on this story, why would I rely on the New Testament as a whole, or the book of Matthew, or even beyond? So, who are these Magi? Where did they come from, really? Let's take a look at it this morning. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 2 this morning, and we're going to walk through Matthew chapter 2 and take a look at the tale of the wise men. Now, there are only two of the four Gospels that actually give us a picture of Jesus' early life and His birth. That's in Luke chapter 2, which you may have read yesterday before you open Christmas presents. I know that's a tradition in our home to do that. Uh, the other is, is the first two chapters of Matthew. And so Matthew only takes two out of 28 chapters to talk about Jesus' early life, and an entire one of those chapters centers on the story of the wise men. So, clearly, Matthew believes that this account is so important as to warrant an entire chapter's worth of attention. So let's begin and let's take a look at this story. We're in Matthew chapter 2, and I'm going to start at verse 1. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and we have come to worship him. So there it is. That's what we know about the wise men in those two verses. That, that, that's it. That, that's all we've got. We know that they, they're, uh, they're magos, according to the Greek, or because it's plural, it's magoi. There's more than one at least, right? Matthew says they're from the east. He doesn't tell us exactly where. We don't have a country of origin. We don't have any of those names that I just mentioned. We don't even have an exact number. That's it. That's what we know about the Magi from, from the Scripture passage. So in order to learn more about the Magi, we have to turn to some historical context. So, like I said, the word used to describe our heroes is a word in Greek that is magos or magoi, and in English we use the term magi. That term in Scripture is found in, uh, again, it was found here in Matthew. It's also found in Acts chapter 13, verse 6 and verse 8, where there's a magos whose name is Elymas. And if you're familiar with that story, Elymas opposes the Apostle Paul. So it's not exactly a glowing reference for a magos, right? We're not off to a good start here. Okay, so Acts chapter 8 refers to a guy named Simon, and the word that's used to refer to him is very similar to Magos. Uh, He's referred to as a, a magician and a sorcerer. And if you go in traditions of the early church history, Simon Magus is remembered in church history as one of the fathers of all heretics. Great, right? We're off to a wonderful start with our Magi. Not exactly glowing references for people referred to as Magi. So let's keep digging a little bit. 
The Greek term magos was derived indeed from a Persian word like the, the nerd in the video kind of informed us. And the word referred to a specific caste or group of priests and experts who advised the kings of Babylon and Persia. Anybody remember Pastor Rob's entire sermon series on Daniel? If we go into Daniel chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar is having this dream, and he wants a group of people to come and interpret it, and he summons this laundry list of people. Uh, one of the terms mentioned in that passage is this idea of Chaldeans, and that likely referred to the people that eventually became this group known as Magi, no, Mag Magos in the Greek, Magi in English. And so all the way, even back as far as the time of Daniel, we see this group but that term evolves, particularly once we get to the time of Christ, that term becomes a term that refers to a group of people who would seek wisdom from any source. They would look at ancient texts, and particularly religious texts, and uh, they were also skilled in astrology, magic, and sorcery. Now, if you're a student of the Old and New Testament, you heard those terms, and, and you might have bristled a little bit, because in Jewish and Christian tradition, sorcery is not smiled upon. And uh, anybody who had that connection to sorcery and to magic, uh, you know, the Old Testament and New Testament forbid being involved in those things. And, and so Matthew's audience, particularly his Jewish audience, would have seen that term magi and said, why is he bringing up magi? Ooh, you know, ooh, that's kind of, we don't want to associate with those guys. Uh, M.A. Powell actually argues that because of the negative connotation, Matthew's readers would not have seen these as wise men. They would have seen them as fools. Ouch, that's, that's harsh, right? So because of their profession, a lot of people believe that, that the Magi were Gentiles because Jewish people would not have practiced this kind of sorcery and, and things like that. And this is probable if we, look at, if we look at Matthew chapter 2, because the Magi refer to this term, the king of the Jews. This term was a term that was a secular term, uh, again, a non-Jewish term, uh, that was used to try and, and, and kind of talk about this idea of the Christ or the Messiah, uh, the one who would come and liberate the Jewish people. And, and so this was a kind of a Gentile term that attempt to, attempted to describe Messiah. And so again, we, we believe that the Magi were probably Gentiles, and we know that they are from the East. They're not from the area. And it doesn't necessarily preclude them from being Jewish, but again, it's kind of another, another vote in favor of them being Gentile. But the idea of them being from the East kind of begs the question, where exactly were these guys from? So you see a map up on the screen, you see a little yellow dot there, uh, that is the location of Babylon. And you'll see that Babylon, uh, Judea, the region where Jerusalem is, is in green up there. And uh, you'll see that dot is pretty well due east from where Jerusalem was located. So Babylon is a strong candidate for the home of our wise men friends. And even if they weren't specifically from Babylon, again, if we look at the term magi, uh, magi would have largely come from that region of sort of grayish blue there, Parthia. Uh, Parthia was the Parthian Empire. It was a neighbor of Rome. Uh, and when you talked about magi in, in Roman culture, people would associate that with Parthians in the Parthian Empire. This idea of magi, people who practice sorcery, was kind of an exotic concept. And so, uh, is likely that if Matthew is referring to Magi, that even if they didn't come specifically from Babylon, they would have been Parthian. 
And if they were a Parthian, there's a possibility that they came as far as Western India, uh, could have been the farthest away that they would have come to come to Jerusalem to try and seek this king of the Jews. So where does the king aspect of the Magi come into play? Because again, we, we don't see in Matthew chapter 2 that they refer to them as royalty in any way. So we know that, that their gifts, the gold, frankincense, and myrrh, are kingly gifts. They were expensive gifts. So again, the, we can kind of safely assume that the Magi, if they weren't rich themselves, that they had a, a benefactor of some kind uh, who would have helped fund their journey and would have helped fund these gifts that were brought. It also makes sense for the Magi to have had some kind of elevated social status or station. Historically, as we saw with Nebuchadnezzar, Magi served as advisors to the king at the very least. Uh, so even if the Magi were not royalty themselves, there's a strong possibility they could have been nobles. But even if they weren't nobles, then they would have served the king in his court. And especially since we see in, in Matthew chapter 2, where we see them go into Jerusalem, and they're able to go to King Herod and have a conversation with him. Now, most people off the street weren't able to walk into Jerusalem and go, I want to meet with the king, because they would have been like, yeah, that's nice, get in line. Now, these guys show up as some kind of foreign dignitary, and it gets Herod's attention. So even though they may not have been kings, that's not a stretch for them to have been nobility of some kind. Now, these verses also introduce a pretty controversial part of the story, the star. Now, these we see are students of astrology, these magi. They're watching the sky, and they see something that gets their attention. Matthew describes it as a star, and, and if you look at the word in the Greek, it, it means star. There's really not much special about it. It's, I mean, it's, it's used all over the place, and it refers to a star in the sky. So we really don't learn a whole lot from that. But modern astronomers and biblical historians have gone to great lengths to try and explain what on earth this star might have been. We could spend all day talking about it, so I'm going to summarize for you so we can go home and eat lunch at some point, okay? This star, some people say, well, what if it was a comet? That would make sense, right? A big astronomical sign in the sky. What about a supernova or a nova, the explosion of a star? That would have gotten someone's attention. There's a really cool theory about the alignment of planets, the conjunction, particularly of Saturn and Jupiter, that may have even appeared to point directly to Palestine at the time. Now, as cool as those theories may be, and as much fun as it is to think about it, there is one problem with all of those explanations, and that's the fact that later in the passage, the star appears to settle right over top of the house where Jesus was in the village of Bethlehem. Now, I don't know about you, but I haven't exactly seen a star in the sky do something like that. Maybe one of Elon's satellites is about as close as it gets. But stars in the sky don't tend to settle right over top of a house in a little village somewhere, okay? So, you know, Pastor Rob on uh, Thursday, or on uh, Thanksgiving Eve, or Thanksgiving, Christmas Eve, I get the dates right in my head here, it's been kind of a week. If we look at Christmas Eve and what Pastor Rob had said, you know, sometimes we try to write off miraculous events in the Bible. We try to explain them away with science or something like that. But, you know, God is the God who created all of science. He created nature. And so I believe that this is a supernatural event, that this is simply a miracle that God gave for the wise men to get their attention and then to direct them to the house where Jesus was. 
Again, we can try and explain this and, and look at different options, and I, I kind of nerd out about that stuff. It's kind of fun for me to do, um, but I, I believe it is quite possible this was just simply a supernatural occurrence that, that, that God gave the Magi to observe. But then that asks kind of another question. So the Magi see this, this supernatural star appear in the sky. They're students of astronomy. They see it. They connect it with something miraculous taking place, something amazing taking place. Where do they make the jump from that to this trip to Jerusalem? How do they know that this star indicates the birth of a king in Judea and then specifically of the Jewish people? Well, remember, we talked about Daniel and we talked about Nebuchadnezzar. If you remember, Daniel was hauled off to Babylon along with most of the people in the area after Babylon came and conquered them in that time. Now, what do you think accompanied Daniel and his countrymen to Babylon? How about their writings, their culture, their beliefs, their prophecies, all of those things, all accompany Daniel and his crew to Babylon. And Daniel, rising in social station and serving underneath not just Nebuchadnezzar, but several of his successors afterwards with Medes, Media and Persia, it's likely that these Jewish scriptures would have been held in some esteem and, and preserved for study. And so the Magi, even if they weren't experts in Old Testament prophecy, they may have been familiar with them, or if they weren't familiar with them, when they went to go research this sign that they saw, they would have had Old Testament prophecy to be able to study it and look at it and learn from it. It was not a stretch to, to have had that happen. And again, we see God orchestrating the events of history to cause what we're happening to see here in Matthew. So, after digging into the context on these two verses, we have a working idea to help us get started understanding these magi. Magi were pagan, pagan astrologers from the Parthian Empire, possibly Babylon specifically, and they were watching the sky and see this miraculous star sign in the sky. And they determine that this sign indicates that a king of the Jews has been born and they go to Jerusalem to try and find more information about this sign. Of course, if you weren't experts in Old Testament law, where would you go to find experts in Old Testament law? Jerusalem. It's a natural fit. So when they arrive in Jerusalem, we see that they go to Herod, the king of the area, and they ask him, and this is kind of a natural fit, right? If you're looking for a king and potentially a baby king, why not go to the current king and ask him, hey, uh, did you have a child or, or maybe one of your relatives? Do you have an heir? Who are we supposed to, to go to to track down this king? Herod is a natural start. So let's continue on with Matthew to see where this story goes from here. Uh, we're going to pick up with verse 3 in Matthew chapter 2. So when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Enter King Herod. Boo! Herod the first, or Herod the Great, uh, not remembered as a super great guy, uh, he was appointed by Rome as a regent over Judea, the little region that was in green on the map, uh, from about 37 to about 4 BC. Herod was not warmly received by his subjects, partially because he was the physical embodiment of Roman rule over the area, and they were not excited about that, 
partially because he claimed to be a Jew, but he was actually an Edomite, which was a half-Jew. And you can go back in the Old Testament and learn what that meant specifically. But in the eyes of the Romans, they saw Herod and went, yeah, he's Jewish enough, let's put him in charge of the people. And the Jewish people were kind of like, eh, not really, and they were not excited about him. That's, that's kind of summarizing that. Now, on the one hand, Herod is remembered for being a master builder. Herod was responsible for the restoration of Solomon's temple. Herod was responsible for a lot of building projects in the area that were magnificent and remembered. But on the other hand, Herod was remembered as kind of paranoid, and particularly as he got older, he got much more paranoid and was very exceptionally violent. And uh, we're going to see his paranoia develop here. He is troubled upon hearing that there is a rival king of the Jews. And not only just any king of the Jews, Herod hears that term, a king of the Jews, and immediately connects the dot to the Christ, the Messiah. So he goes to the Sanhedrin, probably, the, the ruling council of the Jews, the priests and scribes, and he wants to find out more, not just about the king of the Jews, but he asks them specifically about the Messiah. So Herod is troubled at this hearing, but we also hear that the city of Jerusalem is also troubled upon hearing about the birth of the king of the Jews, so to speak. Now, why were the people of the city of Jerusalem disappointed? If they didn't like Herod, you would think that they'd be pretty excited about a possible new king, right? Well, like we said, uh, Herod was paranoid and was violent, and this was late enough in Herod's life that he'd already done some pretty violent things. Uh, Kenneth Bailey notes that Herod's sons were viewed as political rivals. Two of his favorite sons were strangled upon his order at a fort in Samaria. Kind of makes me not want to see what he did to his least favorite sons, right? He had one of his wives killed when he had suspicions about her political loyalty. And then after her death, Herod would send servants to call for her, and then upon their inevitable failure, would have them beaten. So you can see why the people of Jerusalem might have been just a little concerned about a witch hunt for a rival king. Who knows what that was going to end up looking like. Now, the elites of Jerusalem would also have been troubled by anything that would have shaken the status quo. And we see that even in the life of Christ, as you walk through the Gospels, those that should have been most excited about the coming of the Messiah were the ones who were also the most fearful about his uh, challenges to them. You know, the guy comes in and starts talking about them being a brood of vipers, and they really weren't super excited about listening to him. And so, so the people of Jerusalem start to demonstrate that hardness of heart even here. So Herod seeks information, as we said, from the Sanhedrin, the ruling council of the Jews. He wants to find out where is it that the Christ is supposed to be born, the Messiah. So the Sanhedrin informs him from the prophecy in Micah 5.2 that the Christ was to be born in Bethlehem. And so he passes that knowledge on to the Magi, but not until he's had a chance to do some reconnaissance first. Let's continue in Matthew chapter 2. We're going to pick up in verse 7. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem saying, go, search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. Right. So based on what we've learned about Herod, I think it's safe to say that he has no intention of worshiping the Messiah, the Christ child, right? 
he has every intention of exterminating his rival. And so he goes to the Magi and says, hey, about when did that star appear? And from that, later, he's able to ascertain the age range of children that Jesus might have encompassed. And, and we'll find out more about that in a moment. So Magi continue their quest. And so verse 9, we're going to pick up again. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. And then opening their treasures, they offered to him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. So, mission accomplished! The Magi from Jerusalem to Bethlehem uh, make a short jaunt. It's about a six-mile trip compared to the journey they've just had, not very far at all. And uh, they, they begin the trip from Jerusalem to Bethlehem. Now, Jerusalem to Bethlehem was a fairly common trip to make. They really didn't need a star to tell them which direction to go. But as they're traveling, the star reappears. And it says there that they uh, rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. This means that they, like, hyper-rejoiced, that they saw the star and they were not expecting to see it again. And so it caused them to have great joy at seeing the star. And not only that, but the star drives them directly to the house where Jesus was, that it just kind of hovers right over top of that place. And so they're able to know which city they should go to, but then they also have that GPS to show them exactly the location where they need to be. Now, the Magi complete their journey by worshiping at the feet of the child king, Jesus. Don't miss this incredible moment in this passage, and I believe this is part of the reason why Matthew gives us this at all. This is the first recording of Gentiles worshiping at the feet of the Messiah. This is the first time that non-Jews recognize the Messiah and begin to worship Him. All of the stargazing, all of the study, all of the travel culminate in this moment where these pagan astrologers bow at the feet of the Jewish Messiah. Now, the Magi present young Jesus with several valuable gifts. Now, it's possible they pick these gifts up along the way as they travel to the region. It's consistent with what they are and where they come from. The first gift is just straight-up gold, and it really doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure out why gold was important and valuable and good. If I handed you a block of gold, you'd be pretty excited, right? Even today, gold is pretty valuable and, and, and uh, a sought-after gift. So the second is frankincense, which you can kind of see in the picture there. Uh, frankincense comes from southern Arabia and Somalia, and frankincense is a resin from a tree that was most notably used in the only incense that was permitted on the temple in Jerusalem at the altar there. Uh, it wasn't the only piece of it, but it was one of the components mixed to make that, that fragrance. And then the other is myrrh, and uh, myrrh is a sap that was also used in incense and perfume. You can still buy frankincense and myrrh, and it pretty much looks like that, uh, as, as you see in the picture there. Now, traditionally, these three gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh, are associated with different things having to do with Jesus. Uh, gold representing Christ's kingship, frankincense representing his divinity or deity, and myrrh symbolizing his death and resurrection. Now, that third one, John, in his gospel, records Nicodemus bringing myrrh and aloes to prepare Christ's body for burial. And so that's part of why we associate myrrh with Christ's death and resurrection. 
Now, more practically, uh, Mary and Joseph, as you probably remember from the story, are are about to have to make a a midnight trip out of not just town, but out of their country to get away from Herod. And I kind of have a feeling they were going to need a little bit of cash for the journey. So the gifts from the wise men were very valuable indeed, and I think it's going to help fund their trip in a moment. Now, you probably remember how this part of the story ends. After their visit, Matthew says that the Magi were warned in a dream uh, not to go back to Herod, but to to take off for home. Now, it says in uh, Matthew that they took another way to get home. Uh, And if you remember our little map, uh, if you take a northern route out of Babylon, there's a couple rivers and some towns that you could use, and it was a nice friendly trip. It'd take you a couple weeks to kind of just meander across. But if you needed to get back to Babylon or to the Parthian Empire in a hurry from Jerusalem, there was a route that would take you across the desert. It was a straight shot. Uh, I actually looked it up on Google Maps and barring any geopolitical issues, you could get from Jerusalem to Bethlehem in a matter of about 14 hours even today on the road. This trip would have taken them a couple of days, and it was an uncomfortable trip across the desert. But, you know, if someone was was seeking your death and on your coattails trying to kill you, uh, you would probably be willing to make the shorter trip across the desert to get out of Dodge as fast as possible. And so that's what the Magi do. They, They bolt across the desert, they get back home, and that's the last that we hear from the Magi. Now, the coming of the Magi set several things into motion that wrap up the rest of Matthew chapter 2. Joseph is once again visited by an angel. The angel warns him to get Jesus out of Herod's jurisdiction and into Egypt, where he would be safe from Herod. Joseph, of course, obeys. He's got a pretty good track record of obeying when the angels show up and tell him stuff. So Joseph obeys and takes his family to safety. Remember those gifts from the Magi? Well, if you had to pack up and start your family and your business back up abroad in a foreign country, I imagine having some gold and some expensive spices would be a great little nest egg to get you started again. Now, once he realizes the Magi bailed on him, Herod is furious. And as we learned earlier, Herod was really scary when he was unhinged. Herod orders the massacre of male children in and around Bethlehem who were two years old and younger. Now, why two years old and younger? Because Herod had asked the wise men when this star appeared, and that was based on the information that he got from the wise men. I wouldn't be surprised if he padded the number a little bit just to be sure and to be thorough. And um, you know, sometimes people hear this particular part of the story, and, and it causes them to question the account from Matthew, because there's no other reference to this activity in, in uh, Josephus or others who wrote about Herod. And they say, well, if he had massacred all of these children, don't you think that, that they would mention that? Well, first of all, Bethlehem was not a large city. Bethlehem was a village. And if you take what they estimate the population of Bethlehem and the surrounding area to be, it's estimated that this massacre of the innocents would have involved somewhere between 10 to 30 children. Now, that's a heinous act still, but it doesn't, it doesn't bring to mind the, the mental image of thousands that we usually get when we, when we talk about that event. Now, also, as we learned, this is absolutely 100% consistent with Herod's character. And on the scale of everything that Herod did, this would have been like Tuesday for Herod. Oh, he went to a small village and killed some people. Well, you know, that's just kind of what Herod does. So it doesn't even warrant a footnote in Herod's history. Now, obviously, for our purposes, from Matthew, it's definitely worth mentioning. 
So Matthew closes this chapter with a final note about Jesus' family. An angel appears again to Joseph, informing him that Herod the Great is dead and that it's safe to return. Now, Joseph packs up his family and moves back, but instead of returning to Bethlehem, which you know, he may have wanted to do, uh, he realizes that a, uh, a guy named Archelaus had taken over. Uh, Herod, after he passed, uh, his kingdom was split into three sections for a couple of his sons. And Archelaus had every bit of Herod's cruelty without any of his political skill. And so Archelaus is eventually deposed because the Sanhedrin makes a petition and, and they're like, yeah, this guy, he's kind of like killing off a bunch of people and he's bad news, we should get rid of him. And Rome goes, all right, okay. So they depose him and exile him and he's out of the picture. And uh, so Joseph says, yeah, we're not going to mess with that. Uh, I'm going to go back to Nazareth, which if you read Luke is where they started their journey originally. And uh, he goes under the, the authority of Herod Antipas. Now, Herod Antipas is the one who's responsible for beheading John in uh, Matthew 14, so it's kind of the lesser of two evils there, but uh, still lesser. And so Joseph, wanting to protect his family, goes back to Nazareth instead of staying in the Jerusalem area in Bethlehem. So that's it. That's the story of the Magi. Now we come to the most important question of this whole adventure. Why? Again, why does Matthew take the time to tell us about all of this? It's kind of an interesting piece, and, and it doesn't, particularly knowing that it was Magi, knowing that his readers would not have thought very highly of them, why does Matthew take an entire chapter and talk to us about the Magi? Well, there's a major theme throughout the book of Matthew. If you walk through the book of Matthew, uh, you'll see this theme of fulfillment. Matthew comes up with a statement and says, this was done to fulfill the words of the prophets or the word of this person that said this. And so in this chapter alone, Matthew presents four of these fulfillments. Uh, the first, despite being considered a Nazarene, Jesus was born in Bethlehem. And that fulfills the prophecy that the Sanhedrin gave to Herod from Micah 5.2, that the Christ would be born in Bethlehem. That may not seem like a big deal, but that would have resolved a really big debate about Christ's authenticity as the Messiah. Well, they said he was from Nazareth, right? Yep, that's right. Well, but it says the Messiah was supposed to be born in Bethlehem. Oh, he was born in Bethlehem. He's just from Nazareth. Oh, okay. Debate over. Problem solved, right? So Matthew gives us that to let us know that he did fulfill that prophecy, and that's a big deal. That's very important. The second fulfillment, Jesus was called out of Egypt after having fled there, and that fulfills a prophecy that Matthew references from Hosea 11.1. 1. That prophecy says, when Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt, I called my son. There's God's son. He was in Egypt. God called him out. There you go. Fulfillment. Number three, Herod's massacre fulfilled the words of Jeremiah's that Matthew quoted from Jeremiah 31, 15. And again, that's found in Matthew chapter 2. He pulls it straight out of the words of Jeremiah. And so the massacre of the innocents fulfills that prophecy. And then number four, Jesus being from Nazareth fulfills a theme across the prophets that the Messiah, that Jesus would be despised. At the end of Matthew chapter 2, it's, it's a little word there that uh, some people think refers to Nazareth, and it's a very, very similar word, but most commentators believe it was actually a play on words that had to do with being despised. And so Matthew comes in and, and gives us this citation telling us that, you know what, 
uh, being from Nazareth was a mark of being despised, and so this fulfills a prophecy that Jesus would be despised. Well, how do we know that people from Nazareth were despised? Well, if we go and, and look at the words of Nathaniel, when they told Nathaniel, hey, uh, yeah, this is Jesus of Nazareth, and he said, can anything good come out of Nazareth? That was his first reaction. Like, they're trying to tell him about the Messiah, and he gets, like, repulsed about the idea that this guy, oh, from Nazareth? Really? Um, and so here, uh, this fulfills prophecy, kind of like what Isaiah 53.3 tells us. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. So, in addition to fulfillment of prophecy, Matthew also uses this account to call to mind several other parallels with Old Testament history. If you were here for Christmas Eve, uh, you'll remember that Pastor Rob talked a little bit about Easter eggs in the Old Testament, right? These are several Easter eggs from the Old Testament that Matthew calls to mind as we, as we process this story. The first is the visit of the Queen of Sheba to Solomon in 1 Kings chapter 10. If you read verse 10 of that chapter, the queen brought the king Solomon 120 talents of gold and a very great quantity of spices as a part of her gift. Foreign dignitaries paying tribute to the king of the Jews with gold and spices. Does this, does this kind of ring a bell? Maybe just a little bit? Does this kind of sound familiar? On top of that, it's worth mentioning that a couple of Old Testament passages, and especially some in the Psalms, connect the Queen of Sheba with the future glory of the Messiah. And so here we go. Old Testament Easter egg, the Magi, call to mind this visit of the Queen of Sheba and connect with the glory of the Messiah. That's pretty cool. The second is a guy named Balaam. You guys remember Balaam? If you attended Sunday school as a child, you probably remember Balaam as the dude with the talking donkey. That's generally all we remember about Balaam. Uh, but his story is found in Numbers chapter 22 through verse 24. Balaam was a pagan seer, uh, kind of a descendant, an ancient antecedent of a magi in a sense. And uh, God used him to bless Israel, even though Balaam was pretty much just looking out for whatever would get him the biggest payday. He was not remembered positively. Um, but Balaam's occupation, not only does that call to mind our Magi friends, but Balaam actually has a prophecy in his fourth oracle that scholars connect to the Magi. This prophecy is from Numbers 24, 17, and it says this, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. It shall crush the forehead of Moab and break down all the sons of Sheth. So a star shall rise out of Jacob, and a scepter, referencing a king, right? And so there's a lot of scholars who think that if the wise men, if the magi, had to research things that would connect the star that they saw with the king who is the king of the Jews, that this very verse may have been the verse that set them on their path to Jerusalem. Again, we don't know, because the Scripture doesn't tell us out loud and clearly but that's certainly a possibility, and how cool would that be for Balaam as far all the way back as the book of Numbers, just planting that seed through his prophecy that would then later to lead to the Magi coming and worshiping at the feet of Christ. Now, the third parallel, and this was one that would have been really, really obvious to Matthew's Jewish audience, this would have been Moses. Think about it. A baby is born who threatens the foreign king, 
The foreign king uses infanticide to stop the threat. The baby is supposed to deliver his people. The baby is taken away to Egypt for safety. I mean, the parallel almost smacks you in the face as you read it, as you start to think about it. it it's super obvious. And so Matthew positions his, his retelling of the life of Christ to, to guide the people through that mentality that, hey, this is your deliverer. But unlike Moses, who delivered you from actual physical slavery and enslavement, Christ is delivering you from more than that. Christ is the deliverer of, of your life from sin and, and conqueror of sin and death. He's going to deliver you from more than just Rome. He's going to deliver you from your sins. Now, there's one more reason I believe Matthew presents this story to us, and it centers on the phrase that the Magi use to refer to Jesus when, when they ask Herod about him, and that phrase is the king of the Jews. You know, the anticipation of meeting this king drove the Magi on their journey, and uh, you know, they may not have known this at the time, but Herod wasn't even considered the king of the Jews. He was just regent of the area, and if he had tried to take that title, the Jews would have been super upset. The phrase king of the Jews, as I mentioned earlier, was a, a secular title. It was an attempt to describe the Messiah by those who were not familiar with what, what the Old Testament taught about him. And honestly, the, the, the modern or the, 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 I guess the uh, contemporary perception of the Messiah at the time of the Roman Empire and, and the Jews there, it kind of reflected that idea as well that they had of a conquering king who would come to Rome, quash the opposition, and, and rescue them. And so that's kind of the idea that came to mind with this title, King of the Jews. But do you remember where we see this phrase again? It actually comes in Matthew chapter 27 a couple of times. In verse 11, Pontius Pilate, the Roman replacement for the guy I named earlier, Archelaus, he was interrogating Jesus, trying to determine whether the man that stood before him truly was claiming to be a king of the Jews in his mentality. The Jewish leaders wanted him accused of trying to take authority that uh, would have rightly belonged to Caesar in the eyes of Rome, and they wanted to have him executed. Now, Pilate interrogates him and sees no reason to have him killed, but he goes along with the crowd and orders his execution anyway. Later in chapter 27, we see the phrase return as a cohort of Roman soldiers, probably six to 800 guys, empty out of the garrison and begin to mock Jesus. They throw a scarlet robe around his shoulders and a crown of thorns around his head. And in verse 29, they gather around him and mock him saying, Hail, King of the Jews! And then the phrase returns for the last time in verse 37. As Jesus hangs on the cross, the sign indicating his crime from Pilate read, this is Jesus, the King of the Jews. And there's that phrase again. After Jesus died, a Roman centurion completes this concept, though. He starts to get it. Because the Roman centurion who was overseeing this activity saw all the miraculous things that happened upon Christ's death. And what did he say? He said, this is, he didn't just say, this is the King of the Jews. He said, this man truly was the Son of God. And so we see even in the acknowledgement of this centurion who would have only known about the concept of the king of the Jews, he puts the pieces together and says, oh, no, no, this man was more than just the king of the Jews. This man was the son of God. And so Matthew takes us on that journey from Matthew 2 with the king of the Jews all the way to the centurion, recognizing truly who Jesus is. So Matthew has great purpose in including the story of the Magi for us in his writing. The Magi show that Jesus fulfilled prophecy, that he completed the prophecy of the Old Testament. 
It shows us that Jesus truly was the Messiah, the Christ. And the Magi are the forerunners of us being able to sit here today as non-Jews, as Gentiles, to be able to gather and to worship at the feet of the Messiah, of the Christ, of Christ himself. And that's what Christmas is all about. That's what the Christmas story is about. All of the threads of history, all of the prophecy, all of those cool Easter eggs from the Old Testament, they're more than just neat references. They, all the threads of history lead to this moment of Christmas. You think about it, Balaam's prophecy, Daniel, Isaiah, Hosea, Micah, all of those things, that's just scratching the surface. You know, whenever I reflect on Christmas, the words of Paul from Philippians chapter 2 come to mind. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross." Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Folks, that's what Christmas is about. Jesus left heaven and he became a human, and not just any human. Jesus became an infant, an infant who needed his diapers changed, an infant who, who needed to be nursed, just a helpless baby. He left all the glory of heaven to do that for us. He demonstrated perfect obedience to his Father, something that we absolutely cannot do. He was buried. He rose again. He proved that he conquered death. He died for us in our place, proving that He is the Messiah. He did all of those things for us. And as a result, Jesus is exalted. He is given the name above every name that we would confess Him as Lord. So today, if you're, you're here in person or maybe you're joining us online and you've never made that confession, that profession of faith, that Jesus is Lord, what better way to conclude the Christmas season than by receiving the best Christmas gift ever? What better way than placing your faith and trust in Christ alone for salvation? If you're here in person, you've never made that decision, be sure you come talk to myself or any one of our elders after the service. We would love to be able to share more about that with you. If you're joining us online and you've never made that decision to trust Christ alone as your Savior, I would encourage you to reach out to us, email, call, text message, whatever it may be. We want to share more about that with you. And for those of us who have trusted Christ, let's celebrate the salvation that was brought to us. Let's send this Christmas season out with thankfulness and with gratitude in our hearts. Let's close in prayer. Father, I thank you so much for Christmas. I thank you for orchestrating all of the events of history to point to our salvation and to pave the way for the coming of Christ. Thank you for the story of the Magi, for the role that they played in welcoming your son to earth, and for being forerunners of all peoples from every tribe, every nation, every tongue, being welcomed into your kingdom. Jesus, we thank you that you took on human form and that you submitted to your Father's plan for us. We confess that you truly are Lord, and we worship you this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.